Oko Mako Hawaii Keia. I'm Russell Subiono. This is Our Hawaii, the podcast that looks at the legacy of large land ownership in the islands and how it affects residents' sense of belonging today. Last episode, we visited the community of Lanai City to see whether or not residents felt like their voices were being heard by their landlord, tech billionaire Larry Ellison. You can find that episode in our feed now and at hawaiipublicradio.org. Today, we're looking at Lanai's neighbor, Molokai. There are a lot of parallels between Molokai and Lanai. Small islands, mostly rural, both were home to large pineapple plantations in the last century. You could say they have some of the same charms. They also face some of the same challenges. Molokai, like Lanai, has limited medical facilities. Travel on and off the island is difficult and expensive. Both islands rely on barge shipments for most of their food. And Molokai is no stranger to large land ownership either. The foreign-owned Molokai Ranch controls more than 50,000 acres on Molokai, about a third of the island. But the residents of Molokai have never let outside forces define them. To really understand what it means to belong on Molokai, you have to start with the land itself. Hey guys! How's how's it? Good, good. Let's go meet on the farm. All right. Born and raised on Molokai, Todd Yamashita lives on a one-acre farm just east of Molokai's largest town, Kaunakakai. In order to talk to Todd, you first have to get through Maya, his miniature donkey. Uh, she's kind of like the guard donkey. She doesn't let any funny business happen around here. Business feels a little funny when you count up all the inhabitants of Todd's farm. All told, it's home to about 30 animals, including donkeys, ducks, deer, and a giant land tortoise named King Boris. Look at this guy. 37 years old. Wow. It just started as a garden, and we started getting animals, and before I knew it, we had... It turned into like a Hawaiian petting zoo. Yeah. <laughs> Todd looks totally in his element, walking around with a chicken under one arm. But growing up, Todd never saw himself as a farmer. Actually, he kind of hated the idea. So my high school mascot is was the farmer. And, right. and when I was growing up, I was it was a little bit embarrassing. You know, everybody else was, you know, like lions and tigers and bears and all that kind of thing. And, and you know, I think as a kid, I was a little bit shame of that. You wouldn't know that from the way that Todd bounds around his farm now. He makes digging around in the dirt in 90-degree weather while being pecked at by a flock of chickens seem like an absolute dream. So what had to change for Todd to embrace farming? Well, pretty much the whole world. Q2020. At the beginning of COVID, uh, they shut the stores down. Um, You could only get eight items at a time. People are waiting in, in their car, like, like a mile-long line uh, to pick up food. On paper, Molokai is the absolute last place you'd want to be in a global pandemic. The island has one hospital and only three grocery stores. And the first positive case the island saw was a man who worked at one of those grocery stores, which triggered the store to shut down. The state announced its second COVID-19 death today and the first case of the virus on Molokai. 
Todd's brother Matt made a short documentary about the early COVID days. In it, you see shots of empty shelves and a line of cars like Todd described. I called up one of my local representatives and she said, well, you better learn how to hunt and grow food and fish. <laughs> so, so uh, at the time it was, a, I think a little, I took it as a rude response and then I said, you know what, I, I gotta feed my family. Yeah. And that's when we opened this whole place up. Figure it out. That was the answer for Molokai residents. Figure out what you can grow and what you can catch. And while we were all panic buying toilet paper and frozen lean cuisines, that's what Molokai did. And I think COVID taught us that, you know, as, as self-reliant as we already are, we gotta, we gotta move the needle a little bit more. Yeah. So I, I'm not a pro at all. This is the biggest amount of food I've tried to grow so far. Um, and the, the, the soil here is so salty, so, you know, only about a third of what you grow will actually, you know, grow okay in this soil. So it's been a lot of trial and error, um, but well worth, well worth it. Todd says he can get about one meal a day out of his garden. And, and I think that's, that's a niche that most people are trying to fill right now. It's not about this big commercial farming or anything like that. It's... It's really just, you know, for your friends, your neighbors, your family. Um, and and I, I, like to, I like to think it's always been that way, you know. But, yeah, most of the people here that I know uh, supplement what's on a dinner table um, majorly. You know, whether it's hunting, fishing, growing. Um, the barter system is alive and well on Molokai. I wouldn't even call it a barter system. People just give stuff away. Yeah. Um, you, you give a box away, you know, and you'd be surprised the next day or, or the, you know, sometime that week, you'll, you'll have your own box on your doorstep that sometimes you don't even know who gave it to you. <laughs> Some people just leave you food, you know. Um, but I, I think that's what sets Molokai apart, you know. It, it's, it, it does adhere to Hawaiian values, you know, for, I think for us, if, you know, to, to be somebody um, you have enough for your family and you have enough to give away. People helping themselves and people helping their neighbors. That principle is the bedrock of life on Molokai. In the last 10 years, Molokai has seen a jump in organizations committed to making the island able to provide for itself on its own terms. Organizations like Sustainable Molokai. Uh, if you look at Molokai and their mobile market, I think that is such such a great program um, because I could I'm not participating right now but as soon as I get extra um, it doesn't require commercial farming you know if I have a dozen avocados that are ripe next week I can put them online through yeah. sustainable Molokai and all 12 avocados would be sold and if that's all I have to sell this week no problem wait for the tomatoes to get ripe and sell those next week right right it seems like Molokai is pretty united in how it wants to move forward. It seems like you guys know what what direction you want to head, and everybody's making kind of a concerted effort to move in that direction as well. Yeah, and, and it's a slow process. I, I mean, it, it's taken a little while. I'll give you an example. When Sustainable Molokai started um, over 10 years ago now, um, there was a big conference. I know Thompson came in person and to speak and whatnot, but there were protesters there. 
and they were Hawaiian protesters. Interesting. And they, they were trying to shut it down because they said, sustainability is ours. It's built within our culture. And who are you to start sustainable Molokai? What does sustainability mean exactly? And who is it for? Malia Akutagawa has thought about those questions a lot. She's one of the founders of Sustainable Molokai. And you're also a professor of law and Hawaiian studies at UH, correct? Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Were, are, were you born and raised on Molokai? Yes, I was born and raised on Molokai um, during the 1970s, so child of the Aloha Aina movement. Oh, I know. I know when, when we look at Molokai from the outside, it's easy to find similarities with the rest of the islands. You know, there's also limited housing and land ownership opportunities for locals and Native Hawaiians and the need to reduce dependence on imported food and fuel. The fact that Molokai Ranch owns about 30% of the island draws comparisons to Lanai, where one person owns 98% of the land. But if you look closer, I think what separates Molokai is how much progress they have made to be more self-sustainable. And the name that keeps popping up in our conversations is Sustainable Molokai. Can you talk about what Sustainable Molokai is? It's interesting that you say <laughs> Molokai is making so much progress because usually the definition of progress is the opposite of us. Molokai has the highest unemployment rate and one of the highest poverty rates in the islands. It also has some of the highest energy and food costs. Going by those metrics, Molokai seems well behind the curve. But Malia says that lens obscures the true potential of Molokai. I knew that if we looked at all the other islands, Molokai had the greatest chance of true sustainability. What do you mean by that? true sustainability you know i this malawa around sustainability began to form in my mind uh, this was i think i was like oh, what was i i think i was just about reaching 40 years old and um i felt like the sustainability movement was more about greenwashing it was a, a movement just accessible to those who could uh, afford hybrid cars and who like eating tofu. Malia couldn't see herself or her community in the green movement. But when she came across a book by Van Jones called The Green Collar Economy, it laid out sustainability as a solution to economic inequity. Sustainability needs to be accessible to, to the everyday person. You know, it's providing pathways out of poverty um, and all these all these kinds of things. It, it shouldn't be something that is only accessible to the wealthy. But what really brought the idea of sustainability home to Malia came from a much closer source. One of Malia's mentors from law school, Dr. Daviana McGregor, got in touch with her about a surprising find. She told me that she had gone to Bishop Museum and reviewed all these interviews of Kupuna, um, that Mary Kavena Pukui had done. Mary Kavena Pukui is among the most influential people in Hawaiian history. Born in 1895, she was educated in both English and Hawaiian, and she dedicated her life to preserving Hawaiian knowledge. She captured the stories of hundreds of kupuna 
that would otherwise be lost, including Malia's great-grandmother. It was that interview that Daviana McGregor found and shared with Malia. And one of the things that Mary Covino Pukui asked my great-grandmother was how much fish was in the fish barn. This is at Ualapu'i on the east side um, where I was raised uh, with my grandmother. And my great-grandmother's answer was very offhandedly, oh, there's so much fish. Like, there's so much of it that when you walk in the water, you got to kick them with your feet and grab with your hand. And when Daviana McGregor told me this, I was like in shock. I couldn't even imagine having that much fish in the water. And then kind of flash forward like a few years later after hearing that story, I was coming home from my friend's wedding at night. And on Molokai, it's very natural for you to be the only car on the road. And it's pitch black. There's hardly any street light. So I was driving down the road by myself. And I heard like this loud sound. Like I guess what it would sound like in an arena or stadium. Like how, how you'd hear a crowd like shouting. And I got kind of scared. I was just about pulling around a, a Kupeke fish pond and my my highlights flash on the surface of the water and I saw at least a million fish spawning. They were so crowded and they're splashing so loud and it just flooded my senses. And I thought, if this is what my great-grandmother saw every day of her life, then um, of course the kupuna would say, oh, um, my, my, AI, like, come, come, eat, you know, get plenty. And that's what I realized was the nature of the generosity of our people. Because if every day of your life you saw abundance, you'd never hoard, you would never have this sort of Hobbesian universe of life is nasty, brutish, and short, you would share everything. That really informed how I began to look at sustainability. And that was the, the basis for founding Sustainable Molokai. I try to picture what it would be like to live like that in the world that Malia's great-grandmother grew up in, or the future that Malia wants to build. One where having enough is a given and abundance is a birthright. And it's hard for me to picture because life in Hawaii now feels so tight. Bills are tight. The rental market is tight. You try finding parking downtown off Smith Street in the city on a Friday night and tell me your life feels abundant. But then I remember all the aunties and uncles that were there for me growing up, making sure I had clothes and lunch for school and a lot of the extra things in life. And I remember my cousin Kaniala and his wife Julie and their family, always showing up for my family events, always pitching in, always being there at the right moment to help us. Maybe that's the kind of abundance that Malia is talking about. The kind that allows you to be generous, to have aloha, because you trust that there will be enough. And so to me, sustainability was about how can I have plenty? 
how can there be more than enough for everyone? And how can the Aina flourish? Um, not just be, you know, barely sustaining itself, but that these resources, which are really ohana, they have intrinsic worth. Looking at the ahupua system, for example, I I began to realize that our, you know, our kupuna designed abundance into these systems. Ahupua'a was the system of land division developed by Native Hawaiians. Each ahupua'a was unique, but all had the necessary resources to support those who lived within its boundaries, as well as extra for trade and tribute to the chief. The ahupua'a system fed hundreds of thousands of people prior to Western contact. Malia says the key to this abundance was the close ties between the people and the land. So we actually um, pronounce sustainable Molokai, sustainable Molokai, with Aina in the middle, and uh, so that it would, we would always be on mission in terms of understanding what Aina is. It's the pilina or the relationship between the land and the people uh, in unity and harmony. And that, that was what we were striving for. A lot of what we we did for sustainable mokai was really um, focus on food, yeah, and increasing our food sovereignty and food security. This way of thinking about sovereignty, directly tying it to resources, came up a lot in my conversations with Todd and Malia. They say it's about more than just Hawaii growing its own food. It's about restoring a relationship between people and the land where the two provide for one another. People on Molokai maintain strong ties with the land, but food sovereignty for Hawaii at scale would require nothing less than a revolution of our food system. Never in my life has Hawaii been able to feed its own people. We import 80% of everything we eat, about 3,000 tons of food per day. All that food arrives to a single port in Honolulu. If anything were to happen to that port or any other part of the system, we'd have about a week's worth of food to survive on. The pandemic showed how quickly the systems we rely on every day can fall apart. Malia wants the community of Molokai to be ready. I think when most people think about Hawaiian sovereignty, they immediately go to the political sovereignty. But the more I talk to Molokai people, the more I'm starting to think that resource sovereignty, the ability to grow your own food, utilize food resources from the ocean, produce power off the grid, that is actual sovereignty. How, how does resource sovereignty factor into what sustainable Molokai does and wants to do? It's pretty much central to everything that we do. We've been living in this bubble. We got to change. And for me, I didn't want to be like, those old zombie movies that I used to watch as a kid, uh-huh. <laughs> where, you know, the, the zombies pounding on a door. And then there's this scene where, where this woman is screaming while a splinter of wood from the door goes, is headed for her eye. The film Malia is talking about is a 1979 horror flick called Zombie 2. In an absolutely stomach-turning scene, 
a zombie grabs the protagonist's hair and slowly, so slowly, pulls her, face forward, eyes wide open, towards a huge splintered piece of wood from a broken door. The thing gouged her eye out, and I'm like, why didn't you move your head? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's very slow motion, this disaster that's happening. Like, you have time. Malia isn't going to just sit around and wait for something bad to happen to her community. Whether it's another pandemic, rising prices, or climate change, she wants Molokai to be able to sustain itself, no matter what comes. So for me, it was like, you know, nobody else seems to be doing anything, but we're going to do it because yeah. we know nobody's going to take care of us. <laughs> you know? Next, can Molokai meet Malia's goals after the break? Want to learn how to be a master of business without going back to school? Listen to the Planet Money MBA. No suits, no PowerPoints, just the secrets of business school delivered straight to your ears. Every Wednesday till Labor Day on Planet Money from NPR. I'm Russell Subiono. You're listening to This Is Our Hawaii. I'm talking to sustainable Molokai co-founder Malia Akutagawa. She's one of the main drivers trying to create a system in which Molokai can provide for itself. And she's rallied a lot of support from the community. Sounds like you're getting a lot of buy-in from the people that live there when it comes to carrying on traditions of, of, of being sustainable, having their own gardens, or being able to uh, fish and pull other resources out, out of the ocean in order to in order to to live and to eat on the Molokai. What what do you think it is about the people there that kind of fuels this philosophy and and kind of makes the work that sustainable Molokai is doing possible? You know, I think it's the heart of the people is really aloha aina. And it was something that I was raised with um, from my childhood. Aloha Aina, love of the land. It's a term I feel like pops up more and more these days on t-shirts and social media hashtags, on websites advertising eco-tours. There's Aloha Aina Poi, Aloha Aina Juice, Aloha Aina Barbecue. For whatever reason, Maui Soap Company even has a whole Aloha Aina body care line. But when Malia talks about Aloha Aina, she's talking about something deeper. She's talking about the fundamental connection between Kanaka Maoli and the land, as well as the political consciousness of the 70s around protecting Native Hawaiian practices and natural resources. And Molokai was at the center of that movement. Take Molokai's uncle Walter Ritty and George Helm, who founded Hui Alaloa to fight for land access on their island and later put their bodies on the line to protest the desecration of Koho'olawe. This is Uncle Walter talking to HPR a few years back about his definition of Aloha Aina. Aloha Aina describes your deep relationship with the land, where there's no difference between you and the land and anything on the land, and that it's an unconditional love that you would have the, the same kind of unconditional love you would have for your child. For us, Aloha Aina means you are going to give up your life in order to protect that island. Like our Aloha Aina was militant in, in its approach because we had nothing. Like Uncle Walter really kind of talks about this. He said, 
we were fortunate to see what was happening on other islands, especially Oahu, with the development of Waikiki. And it was something that we didn't want to happen for to, to ourselves. That choice to turn away from tourism, to shun development, has earned Molokai a rep for being unwelcoming, anti-progress. Malia says if you're looking at Molokai that way, you're missing the point. I think what people failed to see was the strength of our island has always been our connection to Aino. We're not, we're not um, expecting anyone to save us. And so if you have this notion that nobody can save us but ourselves, then you end up just taking care of your, yourself and your people. Like, that's a natural thing you're going to do. So um, for us, I think we, we know that what we rely on is our resources. And it also gives us the ability to tell people to F off, you know? This was honestly something I was a little nervous about before coming to Molokai. Being told, as Malia put it so politely, to F off but really about sticking out, about wasting people's time and taking up space on an island where I don't belong. I brought it up with Todd when I visited his farm. It made him laugh. It's very easy, but still very rewarding to make Todd laugh. It's okay if you're from the outside, right? It's more okay if you're married to somebody from Molokai or if you're here to do work or your service space, right? Um, but even if, if you're not, um, the type of people that are okay on Molokai are the people that are active here. You know, the people that um, you'll see in the supermarket buying local things, um, you know, coming to, uh, you know, whatever kind of local events we have, volunteering, right? People who take part in this community. Um, the cross-section of, of people that are working against us here or the people who own their second, third, or fourth yeah. home here on Molokai. Their homes sit empty all year round. They come two weeks out of the year. Um, they claim that they hire house cleaners and employ. Sure, there's a little bit of that, but, um, you know, during COVID, I saw every single home on Molokai purchase uh, from outsiders. And so if you look at scenarios like that, the rent went up, you know, people moved, people I know, family, moved away from Molokai because the rent went up, because it was impossible to find a home. So um, these strategies are, are not, none of them are perfect, right? Um, but we continue to look for mechanisms that will help protect us. You know, I, I'll, I'll even throw out there Anthony Bourdain. For the longest time, it's like, like every now and then I would hear, oh, Molokai, you have to be invited. And then for the last five or six years, it's, it's just been like decided. <laughs> the people who haven't been here, they're like, oh, no, no, I, I haven't been there yet because I haven't been invited yet, right? And I was talking to this woman on the plane the other day and she was explaining that. She's explaining, oh, I did all this research. Molokai looks so awesome, but I'm not going because I, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how to come there, you know, and be okay. Right. And I said, well, where'd you get that idea? Because you're from Canada. 
And she said, oh, I watched the Anthony Bourdain episode on Molokai. And I, it, it finally clicked, you know. It's like in one part, in one of the segments, you know, he features all of Molokai. And he, I think he says something to the, to the matter of, um, you know, Molokai is the kind of place where if you're not from here or if you're not here for a good reason, you should probably be invited. You should probably have a reason to come to Molokai. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll leave with a message. If you're watching this show, I hope your heart is swelling with admiration. But bottom line, don't come here. Yeah. And and honestly, I if I could thank that guy, if he was still around, uh, I would love to shake his hand for that. Because it, I, I would say the people who do come here, um, they're trying to find a really good reason. And a lot of them do have a good reason. The star power of the late Anthony Bourdain can only go so far. Residents are looking for other ways they can control the narrative of Molokai. For both Todd and Malia, that means land ownership. It's one of my passions to figure out how to keep these locally owned lands, you know, from passing, passing through, passing out of local hands, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I'm not sure how to figure it out yet, but, you know, if you walk this shoreline, it's the most beautiful little kipuka in Kanakakai. It's like a little nature walk, you know, and we have all kinds of invasive, or not invasive, but endangered birds, endemic natives uh, that just love this whole area. And yeah, if, if there's anything I could do to figure out how to keep properties like this on Molokai, for Molokai, uh, I'm gonna figure it out. Yeah. yeah. But we also have organizations like Kamehameha Schools, like the Department of Hawaiian Homelands, right? And so there are hundreds, if not thousands of more acres already right there um, that are underutilized. Um, and a lot of my interest comes into uh, how can we be strategic about these big landholding partners um, and make something work here. But folks on Molokai don't want to just work with large landowners. They want to become large landowners, collectively, that is. We're looking at community ownership of Molokai Ranch. Molokai Ranch makes up nearly one-third of the island. It's under foreign ownership by the Hong Kong-based Guaco Group, which itself is part of the Hong Leong Group, one of the largest conglomerates in Malaysia. The Guaco Group closed down operations on the ranch over a decade ago and officially listed it for sale in 2017. The price tag is more than $250 million dollars and Molokai residents want to buy it. Sustainable Molokai and its associated organization, the Molokai Heritage Trust, are spearheading the latest conversations about how the community can raise funds to purchase the ranch. It's a big undertaking, but Malia says the costs to the land and the community could be much higher if the property falls into the wrong hands. Part of that sovereignty is we got to be able to to own these ancestral lands and and manage them in a way that is consistent with with how our kupuna did it. Molokai Heritage Trust is in the process of electing an interim board. It held its first public meeting of 2023 just a few weeks ago. There must have been over a hundred attendees there, you know, and and people who have lived here forever, people who have just moved away, people who want to move home. Uh, it was so amazing to see this really broad level of interest in terms of buying the ranch. And I, I just, you know, 
it, it sounds a little crazy, right? <laughs> for, for the small island of 7,000 people uh, to be able to afford, you know, a hundred million plus dollar purchase of, you know, of this ranch, which represents one third of their island. It, it's, it really is a David and Goliath story. But when you see these people come together and you see the deep level of strategy and planning uh, that's starting to pop up through grassroots means in these conversations, it's you can't help but smile. Molokai is rare, says Todd. There's no other place like it, at least not yet. It's so important, not just because it's our home, not just because it's Molokai. We realize there are small indigenous communities all over the place, and they're grappling with the exact same things we are. Over tourism, um, exploitation, um, you know, displacement, etc. If we can figure it out here on Molokai, we, it, it's definitely something that can be extended to other places. So I, you know, I, I like to think that we're really setting the bar in terms of, you know, not just being able to retain our unique cultural lifestyle here on Molokai, but doing it in a fashion which can benefit other communities. Molokai is offering one vision of what Hawaii's future looks like. And there's plenty for us to learn from. Next episode, we're going to look closer at how education shapes our sense of place and our ideas about where we belong. I'm taking everything I've learned back to my hometown of Waimea on the Big Island. Until then, Oko Mako Hawaii Keia. This is our Hawaii. I'm Russell Subiono. This episode was written and produced by me and Savannah Harriman Pote. Casey Harlow helped to create the show. This is Our Hawaii is produced with support from PRX and is made possible in part by a grant from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, original music courtesy of Lelehua Lanzalati, and additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks to Matt Yamashita for use of sound from his short documentary, An Island in the Pandemic. Kristen Lippman designed our sick logo. Fact-checking for this episode was done by Krista Rados. All the fun parts of this episode are thanks to Anandev Banerjee. Good chance you found out about our show in the first place. Thanks to the work of Sylvia Flores, Liberty Peralta, Sophia McCullough, Emily Tom, and Krista Rados. On any road trip, you want Jason Ubai behind the wheel, Bill Dorman holding the map, and Jose Fajardo picking the music. And big thanks to Michael Helm, who made us feel like family, like Ohana on Molokai.